Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I've Joe Bennett, the hypertrophy coach, back on the podcast. It's been a little while, and it was great to catch up. You're going to learn what he's been up to, what he's currently doing with his training, if he's going to compete again, and then we talk about some of his training with Terence and how he's going to be making him better. What's the difference between training with him versus if he was trying to help someone more gen pop? And then we dig into some of his kind of background behind biomechanics, uh, where his kind of early influences were and what he deems kind of the current space within biomechanics in terms of what's happening on social media and where he's coming from and trying to help educate people and what people can take away from that. I think it was a really interesting and great discussion with Joe, so definitely enjoy this. And as a reminder, I'm mini cutting right now. And as a reminder for you, there is the mini cut movement, our group coaching service. We provide you training, nutrition, everything's there so you can drop fat efficiently and maintain your muscle mass and we'll set you up for success and also educate you along the way if you're interested in some group coaching like that definitely check it out in the link below otherwise let's get into the show enjoy hi guys welcome back to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i have joe bennett back on the podcast we're just talking off air and I, I can't quite believe it's been three years. Uh, a similar thing happened with actually Eric Helms. I don't think it was three years. It might have been two years since I had had him on. And I was just like, I have no real good excuse. I've still been following like Joe's content, Eric Helms content. Hopefully the guys know if, if you're not aware, Joe Bennett, the hypertrophy coach, I, I think the majority of my audience and followers uh, know who you are, Joe. And if you don't, you're going to learn something. But uh, yeah, I can't quite believe it's been that long. Has, has much changed for you in three years? How have things been? <laughs> uh no, not much has changed, honestly. I mean, just get get busier. And honestly, the biggest changes in my life are always like family, you know, related at this point in time. So it's like my boys get older, everybody's doing sports now, everybody's in school now. Uh, so if I get people are ever like, oh, what do you got going on? And like, I think they expect me to talk training or hypertrophy or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's like, no, basically all that revolves now around kids and kids schedule. So that's the majority of my life, just dad mode. But yeah, everything is good. Just, um, and again, ha- happy to be busy, happy to have the time with the kids and happy to be able to still do what I do in between. So, yeah. When was the last time you competed? Uh, the end of 2018. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's been a bit, it's, it's, I'm retired. I get people asking me that. Retired, still, everyone, yeah. So are you going to compete again? I'm like, nah, I just want to try and look good all the time now and be healthy yeah. and all that stuff. Is tra- Do you put training on the back burner therefore, or is it still quite a big kind of driving factor? Um, I mean, it's honestly, it's a, my, it's kind of, I guess, good. And I, I guess there's not really any bad to it, but my training pretty much revolves around Terrence. So everybody doesn't know Terrence Ruffin, you know, I've been doing yes. his training since 2000, I don't know, 17 or something. Um, and a couple of years ago, he moved here, uh, basically just to train. Uh, and so honestly it works out great because there's very few people like, you know, a lot of people I've had people at various times ask me to help them with programming and things like that. And I'm like, I can help with that a little bit, but I was like, you know, I'm like right now, if you look at the programming that Terrence and I do often, I'm like, things of course change, but the benefit is I'm just here with him in person, you know, it's those very, very subtle things that actually make a difference in my opinion, at his level. So my training revolves around training with him. So pretty much whatever his training is, is what my training is. And then the only thing yeah. that I really modify is just volume compared to what he's doing. Um, so no training still a big, and I honestly, I love training. I mean, I'm definitely... I'm definitely mentally better with it now than I used to be because like before I would definitely say it was, uh, you know, borderline obsession, uh, yes. to the point where like so much of my life revolved entirely around that. And, um, and it's, and again, it's one of those nice things now where it's, and I always say too, I mean, somebody should write some books and we could have some therapy coming out the other end, but it's like so <laughs> weird for me because the, the entire 
you know, my entire adult life, my entire puberty life on, I was basically trying to get bigger, period. You know, I'd have periods of losing some body fat or whatever, but it's like, I'm just trying to get bigger with my training. And it's just like, you don't realize how, how much that obviously occupies a lot of things because obviously it's outside the gym stuff. And so as soon as I was like done, you know, like basically done competing and then realizing, okay, well, what, what body weight can I like move and feel good at and I'm healthy at. And then it's like, all right, now what am I, what do people do now? They just work out to maintain, like, what's that like? It's been a couple of years coming to terms with that. Uh, But overall it's good where it's like, I just, I love training. I still enjoy training and it's, and it's nice too to just have, you know, the training in of itself and not necessarily this goal of, you know, I'm going to be Jay Cutler at some point in time, you know, I was 15 years old. I was convinced I could be Jay Cutler or Jay Cutler size. And even, even once uh, the realization that that wasn't going to happen occurred, you're still kind of, I'm trying to move in that direction. And so now it's just, uh, yeah, I just, that's nice. I enjoy training. I enjoy the training hard and, and it's, it's easier for me to prioritize other things, you know, obviously and some yeah. of that started from a business standpoint and now big time is just is family, but I, I can totally relate to that because well, I, I recently had an active rest. So I took a couple of weeks like away from the gym and I was like, man, I have so yeah. much time. And then mm-hmm. just eating at maintenance and not worrying too much about my food and like nutrient timing and things. It was just, like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I can just imagine not having to be like, like you probably were before, very focused on progressive overload, being numbers yeah. in each week and that sort of thing. Whereas now I imagine it's less of a like, yeah, it's nice to just be able to like, hey, here's what happens. I mean, I'm still like, you know, and that's nice too. I'm still very, I'd say like very religious and structured with like, I still write everything down and I still track everything. Yeah. And, um, but and I think that's important for people as well too. Cause I always joke, I'm not, I'm like naturally a hard gainer. So the reality is I think my body would like the easy default would just shift into an endurance athlete. Like we don't need this yes. muscle anymore and it just starts to kind of fall off. So, you know, I like to have that same as anything in life, some accountability and structure and things I'm looking at. But now it's much more like awareness where it's like, I can actually still, I have periods of time where I can have some progression and it, but it's just like now, like the stars literally have to align. And it's so funny how I can see it's like, if I actually get eight hours of sleep, I don't miss any meals. And then it's all of a sudden like in the gym, I'm like, Oh, look, I got an extra rep this week compared to last week. And, but if I, you know, if I'm kind of just lots of times I hover around like 80% of maybe what I should be doing, then I'm, I'm like, Hey, look, everything just kind of maintains where it's at, which I'm also fine with. So yeah, it's like, it's nice when I can have some things happen where I like really, again, prioritize my recovery, things feel good. And then the gym performance just kind of follows. But at the same time, I'm not, like you said, it's not like I'm like beating myself up. I don't really have, I don't have bad sessions. Like I go in and what happens is what's supposed to happen. And, um, and then I still just enjoy that as well too. It's, just, it's funny. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me to lift a lot of the same weights over and over at this point in time. It just kind of is what it is. Yeah. No, I, I, I was recently, I was thinking about it as well in terms of like, we know the literature on how much muscle, uh, sorry, how much you need to do to maintain muscle mass, <laughs> Yeah, like so much li- less than what you needed to do to get there. And oh, then yeah. to keep growing, like the diminishing returns, once you've got a decent amount, it's just like, oh yeah, uh, it sucks the life from you. But I was also like, once you get more of that, like it's kind of like earning a lot of wealth. Like once yeah. you got to a certain point, it's easy to maintain that. But the work above that's really hard. But when you get above that, you're like you're setting yourself apart from the pack. It's kind of the same with like yeah. muscle mass. Once you get above the point of which where a lot of people get to and they kind of plateau and it's too much work. Once you get above yeah. that, it's like wow, you you kind of set yourself apart. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's nice too. Like I'll have times like again from the time constraint standpoint. Me, my gym that I train at full time is literally down the street from me. But all the times so I'm like, all right, today I literally have like a half an hour. And I also have like just basically a power rack in my garage, power rack, uh, like a little cable thing, actually some dumbbells. 
And it's like, you know, I realize if like I could literally train probably half an hour, three times a week and maintain yeah. the tissue I have. So it's not, it's nice to kind of have that option as well too. Cause I still, then the other thing I love obviously is the same as everyone else. Like, of course I want to try and maintain some sort of physical appearance or whatever. But the other part is I just love the feeling that comes with training. Right. You know, so it's like, half of that's like, all right, well, I'm not going to get this glorious session today, but I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do some stuff for half an hour and I'm going to feel good once I'm done with it. You know? So it's, yeah, it's nice too. That's maintenance is not too, too challenging, um, you know, relative to again, clawing for those, uh, extra inches then towards the end. But yeah. And, uh, Joe, something that I've been asking a lot of, uh, it's, it's something that's become more popular. I think, like you said, nothing like what's really changed with training and things like this, like yeah. there's no groundbreaking things that are coming out within like the evidence-based space and things like this, but mm -hmm. you've probably seen the kind of meta-analysis that came out and the, the more studies that are coming out talking about long muscle lengths and mm -hmm. how stretch mediated hypertrophy seems to be a thing and training at that long yeah. muscle length seems to be important. So I've been interested to ask just different practitioners, what their take on that literature is and if that has influenced their programming at all or exercise selection or anything. So I'm interested to hear for yourself if that has influenced you at all seeing this new. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say the short answer for me is, and I wouldn't say there's any really big changes. Um, you know, my thought process has always been, you know, and, and people, and honestly, I still, when people are, you know, asking me specifically about, you know, the stretch mediated hypertrophy and really where does that, where does that actually fall relative to some other things where we're talking intramuscular force production and things like that? I mean, my, I honestly say like relatively basic understanding, you know, some physiology things. I still think one of the most important determining factors is just understanding length tension relationship. And like, where does your body have the most capable, most capability of producing large amounts of intramuscular force. And then the combination of that with still what should guide training a lot with weeding through all the, individual anecdote and some of the stuff that just gets perpetuated amongst bodybuilding and things like that. Where have we historically seen, um, you know, the most results produced? Like what would we just kind of list as the most effective exercises? So for that reason, you know, I think it makes sense. It's always seemed to point to the places you have the most intramuscular force capabilities are going to be mid and length and ranges. And everyone kind of agrees like the short and range, you know, you don't have as much of an opportunity there again, to produce that large amount of force. And again, even if we have a pretty darn good understanding you know, of how the whole sliding filament thing seems to work and why that seems to be the case. That's even the stuff that I joke, I don't get lost in the weeds too much with, is this exactly how, well, I don't know. And um, so when I actually think from a practical standpoint, you know, does this change exercise selection and things that I prioritize? Not a whole lot, because from a practical standpoint, most exercises, you know, you really can't have something that dramatic, even for a, a muscle that maybe, uh, you know, the joint that it's around allows for a large range of motion there's really not that much of a separation of, you know, um, I'm going to really bias the short range here, the mid range and the lengthened range. Realistically in training, you kind of just have the lengthened and the shortened. And then, you know, those ends are going to pick up one area or the other in the middle as well too. And so if we look at the things that I think historically are the best mass builders, they are exercises that overload the lengthened and mid range. And so if we look at almost any muscle group, that's the case. If we look at quads, you know, if we're going to, if you're going to say, you said this ahead of time, we don't need to go to a gym. I don't need a study to say there's one guy moving the bar up and down 12 inches at the top, Mr. Quarter squatter. There's one guy moving the bar up and down 12 inches at the bottom, which nobody does because it's too hard. But if you had to pick one or the other, even a new gym goer, if someone's been in the gym for six months, they haven't read any literature and you just kind of said, Hey, what do you think is going to be more effective? I mean, most people I think would gravitate towards, Oh my gosh, that guy's just going where it's hard. So one, yes, it's harder. 
from an actual you know jork t- joint torque standpoint but also i think you're just training and overloading the ranges where anecdotal we know you just grow muscle and the same could be said for almost any single thing that historically bodybuilders would categorize as mass builders are things that overload the length and in the mid-range and so um i know honestly it doesn't change a whole lot um and because it's we still don't really know exactly what to do i don't still know exactly what to do with you know uh how much time exactly should we spend you know should we have things that are we're trying to isolate just the length and range, you know, should it be lengthened in mid range? Should I have time? Does that mean training the short range isn't important at all? And that's, I think where it just comes down to most people. I think it makes sense to prioritize the movements that are going to overload the length and the mid range, which is very easy to do. And then from there, the rest is kind of just coaching preference. And we're really just making educated guesses, you know, taking the individual person, like, again, that's the whole point of, you know, if you had somebody brand new, you know, how would you choose your exercises as well too? You know, you've got one, maybe two exercises, a body part, if that, am I going to choose, you know, someone that's going to do a pressing motion for chest or something that's a cable that's overloading this position. I'm going to choose the range of motion and the press that I think is going to overload where they have the most opportunity to grow. Now, again, we get more advanced and it's like, that's why it's almost like a wash too. It's like when someone gets more advanced and maybe we need three, four exercises to, you know, train a muscle for whatever reason, and then it's like, well, why the hell wouldn't we train the shortened position as well, too? You know, we could have a couple exercises that still prioritize and bias this mid length and range. And then we'll sprinkle some shortened stuff in there as well, too, because you can make a couple arguments for why that's also good. So now I don't think it changes much. And obviously, that's, I think, not all the time, but, you know, obviously, a lot of evidence and research is kind of always guided by, hey, this seems to work or this doesn't seem to work. Let's try and control some stuff and maybe hash out some mechanisms for it. Um, because it honestly, it kind of, it does kind of follow after we do know that this produces results or these produces results, or this seems to produce results. But again, just the nature of everything in the world, you know, in our sport, no different when you have genetics, outliers, drugs, and all sorts of other things and trying to control for 8,000 things out of the gym. Obviously that's the valuable part of research is it's like, well, let's maybe see what's actually valuable here. And it's the whole like Ronnie Coleman, you know, thing is like, well, Obviously, doing exactly what Ronnie Coleman did will only produce the exact results for Ronnie Coleman, but he certainly did some stuff right. You know, it doesn't matter how good your genetics are, you know, how good your drugs are or whatever. It's still you you have to do something that obviously still has the same cause and effect type thing going on. But we do, of course, want to weed through some of that. Right. I mean, obviously, it's not great for everyone to just emulate one person. Um, But, yeah, so I don't I don't think it's really changed a whole lot for me. but it is, you know, all that stuff is interesting. I like when I'm when I'm reading more about like mechanistic type stuff. Like honestly, for me, that's like it's just like, oh, that's neat. You know, it's not something again I get too caught up in the weeds on. But I do always like to obviously I joke with people that are really good at that stuff and put a lot of brain power to that. I always like to see when people try and, you know, work those mechanisms backwards and try and figure out what we've got going on. And it's one of those things again, too, having a deeper understanding. It's never a bad thing. It's still when the people do the social media type thing where it's like something like that comes out and they're like, see, I knew it or whatever. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You knew what or whatever it is. People are either happy to see stuff because they'll say it validated whatever they were doing or they just like to argue about something or whatever. But, you know, that's just that's just life. <laughs> yeah, I I can appreciate that because um, Pascal, uh, my business partner here, uh, he used the analogy of kind of a to drive a car you don't need to be a mechanic and understand the insides and outs of that car it's kind of the same here in a sense like to be a good practitioner or a good trainee you don't have to understand every like little different thing that's going on within your body and the mechanisms that are going on you need to be able to 
practice it. And sometimes the best, I mean, often, I mean, the best drivers, I mean, their knowledge in terms of the internals probably isn't that high. The same with a lot of the best trainees. You're going to put Ronnie Coleman. He probably couldn't explain a bunch of stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. He's just like, this feels good or something like this uh, that's going to come out. And uh, like you said, what people are doing within the gyms, like the the bodybuilders, that's driving the research. Like it it needs that to kind of then help confirm some things or disconfirm. And like you mentioned, it it seemed to confirm a lot of what kind of bodybuilders prioritize in terms of like feeling the stretch and going deep in movements and then that producing maybe like more of a pump or that soreness that they're kind of looking for. Mm. And I mean, it just aligns nicely with that. So it's it's interesting to hear that it hasn't changed so much for you. That doesn't super surprise me because I know like form and technique and those sort of things were kind of, I mean, they're like what you base your business on in a large mm. part. So it's not like it was something where, I don't know, you were doing a bunch of short range partials and cutting, yeah. not not squatting deep. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, the, the most interesting thing that comes out of research like that, again, as well as, you know, I, I think that it gets a little bit more interesting if we're looking at something Again, if we're looking at a muscle and a, and a joint we're training that does cover a large range of motion, I mean, the thing that is interesting about that is when we get into the discussion of, you know, with things, is it more effective? Because there's basically three things at play there, and, and people do have this discussion point, which, again, I do say is interesting, and I don't really think I have a definitive opinion. Is if we're comparing just to put an actual exercise behind it so people, so we're not too abstract, but if we're looking at a squat, you know, or any type of squat pattern, you know, you could make an argument for or an interesting discussion point would be what's the most efficacious type of squat. Would it actually be more efficient to just stay in the, like, so we take just a squat, you know, just a straight linear loading pattern, just a bar on your back or a hack squat, whatever. And say, would it be more efficient to actually go full range of motion for 10 reps or 10 reps in just the bottom half. And the funny thing why that's interesting to cover is you make two arguments. There is like, you know, one, you know, the bottom half is, is it that we're just staying in the length that seems to be the most effective and then also the loading is completely different in that range as well too. So even though, though the loading pattern of the machine is linear, you know the the profile as far as joint torque is not. So it's also the same spot that's being, um, you know, arguably you're staying and that's the most effective. It's also overloading that position as well too because of the you know the larger increasing moment arm to the bottom. So but like which of those two would be more efficient? And then again, that's where I kind of come. I don't want to say my argument's not my argument, but again, where our pro how important are profiles? So saying the whole thing of like okay, well. You know, if we obviously know if we're comparing a just a linear loading squat, like a hack squat with no bands or anything, we do know that the bottom is most effective. Again, just in this hypothetical world, if like if I could only do the top half or the bottom half and I had to program someone, you would choose the bottom half and everybody would unless they just want to argue for the sake of arguing. But then again, what's the comparison of what would be the FXC of just the bottom half compared to the bottom half and the top? And then you get to the discussion of profiles as well, too. Well, what about what's the benefit then of having something where the loading pattern is not linear to try and match the fact that, you know, the joint torque is not linear as well either and to try and offset that. So that's stuff where I don't think we have definitive answers. Um, and even lots of times when I make the argument for profiles, it's my arguments always, you know, because people talk about full range of motion, which I do think is important, but I still, I have a hard time getting away from if I'm going to train and exercise and go through the range of motion, why wouldn't I want to attempt to match every point in that range of motion to what my body's capable of doing? Um, and that's where I think it's a, it's an interesting thing. I just say, this is kind of my bias. I think that I haven't had that argument necessarily disproven. And then I would also, so again, that that's, I think if there's something really interesting from a practical standpoint, it would be looking at the differences basically between those three things, you know, and what, if there would be one more effective or less effective. And the tough part with research with that kind of stuff as well, too, 
is again, there's just way too much stuff to control for. Cause like in reality, we can make the argument, even if we did say one was more effective or more efficient, or just even something as similar as more stimulus, that's hard to control too for who we're actually then testing that on. Because we all know in the industry, again, more stimulus is not necessarily better. You could take some normal college age person. And again, I've, I literally participated in studies when I was in college, half the time I'd be hungover or whatever it was as well too. And I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, so more stimulus added to someone under that context may not be appropriate. It could actually show that they lost muscle as a result of more stimulus because they couldn't recover from it. And so that's a whole lot of these things as well too. When we're looking at, you know, where do profiles seem to matter and things like that. Some people, they really don't matter much at all, especially your normal population, really. And then the argument, if it is efficiency, they matter for a more advanced population. But then really, again, how you would actually show that, okay, this more stimulus translates to more muscle, I think would still be individual dependent as well, too. So I find all that stuff very interesting. And I think that's where some of that research where it's like, okay, like, again, like because obviously there's some of that partial research. And so is a full leg extension or the partial leg, whatever it is. And all that's like, again, it's the same thing when people jump to conclusions based off of that. I'm like, we don't, we don't know anything. It certainly is interesting though. If one study shows, Hey, this partial worked better than this full. Um, but again, there's still a lot of things that aren't even controlled for, you know, in those studies to really try and figure out what the hell's going on. But I do find all that interesting. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny. You mentioned doing the uh, partial part of the range of motion for the squat. Cause um, mm -hmm. Milo Wolf, who I've had on the podcast, he did the like meta-analysis for all of the kind of studies looking at range of motion. Yeah. He is currently conducting his own N of one study on himself where he is squatting in a Smith machine, just yeah. the like bottom portion of that. And obviously he's yeah. not like trying to ex like say that this, whatever his results are, therefore you can all look at this and use it for yourself. But yeah, yeah we're look we're looking for that study where we've got to know, 20 milos versus 20 other milos but full rom versus i don't know like you yeah. like you mentioned like all these people and then comparing results between them and it's like it's going to be hard to measure that especially like you mentioned for advanced trainees like milo is like he's advanced the results going to be relatively slow yeah and sometimes i wonder if if you auto regulate things like based off like what you're seeing in the gym, your results and mm -hmm. like you have fairly complimentary programming, you're not just like all lengthened or all short or what have you. Mm -hmm. It kind of works itself out where, yeah, if you're yeah. doing more in the lengthened range, you probably do less set volume total, but then mm -hmm. probably you're more fatigued. So you can't do as much as the guy who's doing maybe a bit in the short, bit in the lengthened. Yeah. And overall, the results are the same for yeah. you. It, it's an interesting discussion still. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things. I, I, that's half of, I think, most things. I think with people that actually obviously are, we're obviously into this stuff more than a normal person, Yes, but then also actually are into training more than a normal person. And again, I, I really feel like some of it's almost like, again, we know the answer is both will, will and can work, right? I mean, that's the answer for sure. It's like, I don't care what anybody says. I still, I don't need a study or whatever. If someone says, Hey, you just squat in the bottom half and you go from 10 reps using 135 to 10 reps using 315 only in the bottom half, you're going to get bigger. An actual funny thing is, um, I don't know if you remember, well, I'm sure you know, familiar with him because he owns uh, the supplement company Steel now, but Jason Ha is a retired pro bodybuilder. Um, he's in my area. So I, when I was, you know, coming up as a trainer and um, was kind of getting into bodybuilding, I, I kind of actually thought I was never going to get into bodybuilding. So kind of just observing it from the outside. And it was for people like him. Like he literally trained at the gym that I trained at when I wasn't working often, like a hardcore bodybuilding gym in the area. And when I saw him, him and I are the same age. And I just remember like I had these experiences all the time of like him and I are the same age. And I was like, we're not, we're not the same. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, maybe this whole bodybuilding thing competing anyway is not for me. But anyway, the funny thing is he used to train like that. 
he would only train in partial ranges of motion. And honestly, if you ever looked up his old, old training video, people used to like look at him and be like, what the hell is this guy doing? And he literally was talking about back then. He's like, and I don't remember if he had, he had any reasoning really for the mechanism or whatever. Um, some of it I know was anecdotal, but he was a pretty smart guy. But he was just saying that's where all the effective, you know, stimulus is. He's like, so I'm just he literally would train. If you look at most of most exercises he did, he would move the actual object in his hand, his leg, whatever, would move it like six inches. But it was always in the hardest spot. So if he would be doing like an incline barbell press, he was freakishly strong. He would have, you know, 365 on there and just be doing reps just in the bottom half. He'd be squatting five, six plates on his back and staying just in the very bottom until he did a failure point and racket and whatever. And so it's like again, purely anecdotal study of one. I mean, it was like, you look at him like, oh yeah, that, that worked. It definitely worked well for him. And, but I, but I say that's an interesting thing because people kind of talk about that. And I was like, I do know a handful of people that have done that at periods of time. And, um, you know, where they would, again, he would argue it was more effective. And I was like, well, it certainly worked for you. And again, from pure anecdotal, it's certainly the hard part as well too. So, you know. For sure. No, it's very interesting. And I don't know, some people will argue, I don't know if you've thought about this, that it won't, like it doesn't apply to some muscle groups. So some muscle groups respond better in the mid short position. Do you have uh, an opinion on that? Um, I, again, that's why half of it is I come back to the, and again, I'll be the first person because so some of these things it's, it's again, it's where I like to follow, you know, other people, people I consider research people. Cause like some of it is like, it's honestly interesting to me but it's certainly not like a passion for me so when people are you know stuff where people are talking about the research that shows this effect with stretch media hypertrophy and then we're getting into different muscle groups i'm honestly not 100 well versed in all of that and what it says again because again when i've actually kind of dug in or i'm like okay this is the study and let's read what this person who i trust and whatever their opinion on the study and what it showed condensed versus i don't think there's a single study that i've read start to finish um but for me it still always comes back for Again, I don't think obviously we could completely obviously separate out those mechanisms, right? If again, it really comes from there's the stretch media hypertrophy thing, and there's this large amount of intramuscular force thing. It, regardless of the stretch media hypertrophy thing, I still think every muscle group has the biggest opportunity to produce intramuscular force in those mid and lengthened ranges. Um, and again, I think the couple things where I've seen, there's been a lot of times I've seen people talk about where muscles have a strong external appearance of force production in the shortened position, but that doesn't change the length tension relationship thing, you know, where people talk about how strong the glutes are in fully shortened position. And I'm like, and that's accurate, of course, but that has to do, you know, and that's most people, a lot of people, when they talk about this stuff, I think some of the people that talk about it really need to be careful the way they talk about it because people will say a term I don't like at all is people talking about where muscles have leverage because I don't think people really discern what leverage actually means. Because again, two factors can really play into that. There's length tension, which every muscle is going to display to some degree. And then there's the internal moment arm things. And both of those things are what make up an external expression of strength. And so some people say, oh, the glutes have so much leverage in the shortened position that you should, you know, they, they're, they're kind of different than everything else. And it's like, well, I actually don't think they're any different from a growth standpoint, from an actual mechanism standpoint. They're just different because you're actually perceivably strong there compared to most other, especially single joint muscle groups. Um, where again, it's, there's not this big thing, you know, changing necessarily as far as how the muscle crosses over the joint. Um, so I don't, again, I don't think it changes a whole lot. I mean, it's stuff that again, I'm like, I'm mildly interested in because if I was really, really honest, it's like, man, well, if I look at like something, cause we'll talk about, you know, people talk about biceps or triceps and do they really respond the same type of thing. And it's from a practical standpoint, because it's, you know, it's a single joint, it's a hinge. 
you know, I, I can't say that I've honestly really, you know, biased out times where I've actually really actually overloaded the lengthened position, or if it's just something where I have an exercise that has load in the lengthened or has load in the shortened and everything kind of overloads the mid range anyway. Um, so again, it's one of those things I would honestly say hasn't trained, changed my training a whole lot. Um, but I find it interesting, whatever that yep. means. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think actually it, it's quite nice to talk to someone who kind of understands a lot of these kind of the, the biomechanics behind things and the tense relation, tense, uh, sorry, tension uh, relationship that's kind of mm. being produced and everything and, but hasn't looked at the research because then it, I'm just getting your insights in terms of what have you seen practically happen with like people you're working with and yourself mm-hmm. and like over time, which I think can be, you can uh, get a lot from that kind of anecdote as well. So mm-hmm. that's very yeah. interesting. And actually something I did want to ask about is you mentioned uh, Terrence before, mm-hmm. uh, who the, the listeners yeah. will absolutely know who Terrence is. And mm-hmm. you mentioned kind of how you, your approach to training him. And I think you've spoken about this before, how it's, it's maybe different to how you might train, like, I don't know, the average person listening to this podcast. And yeah. I'd love to hear a bit more about kind of what are you doing with him that maybe is different, what you focusing on him to make him even better. A lot of people look at Terrence, they're like, how can you even make this guy better? Like, um, I'd be yeah. interested to hear about that. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, so a couple of things, there's a whole lot of the same. Honestly, that's the thing that I, I love about training is, um, you know, which I think some people miss in the training world is like, it is how it's, it's a cliche thing, but it's accurate is like how much different stuff people bring to the table. Right. When I first started training, like the very first people that I actually acted as a personal trainer for was in college. So I was training other college age people, which was basically, it was a great experience for the fact that I had no idea what I was doing. And these are probably the hardest people to injure. <laughs> and then, uh, but then fresh out of college, then I started training normal people. Like my average client was weight loss and general fitness, you know, between 40 and 60, and um, you just figure out how much stuff people bring to the table, you know, so fast. So I honestly, genuinely, just from a training standpoint, really try and look at someone individually, what they bring to the table. And that's where I think some of even like these things, these like really basic principles just help so much because like, honestly, from a normal person to Terrence, from an actual training standpoint, I still always just kind of come with, you know, everything stimulus and recovery. And the things that I first start with, this is why I think people get especially new trainers can get so overwhelmed because they have all these X's and O's in their brain, right? If you follow around, you have so much stuff, which in and of itself isn't wrong, but you have this idea of how close to failure should I be training? And I have to do total body and I can't do this and I can't do that. And I have to do this and I have have all these numbers. And when you actually have a human standing in front of you, it doesn't operate like that at all. It literally doesn't work at all. I mean, you have to have some sort of idea of just literally seeing, again, I always say a skilled trainer, and this is the, one of the biggest things that's, portrayed inaccurately in history is some people think of a skilled trainer like what's the coolest most advanced thing they do or they know a real skilled trainer knows how to regress things 10 times further than you would ever think you would ever need to regress an exercise because that's a normal person aside from just the physical standpoint also to not have someone depressed with their perceived inability to perform well on session number one you have to know how to do that you know so how do i take someone to the point where i see what their body is even capable of before I even start to think of this stimulus and recovery type thing. So anyway, I say all that for Terrence, because as much as he's a professional bodybuilder, I still take him as here's Terrence, here's this individual person, what do we have going on? And so the two unique things with Terrence, um, one is he's definitely actually a hard gainer, I would say, especially compared to like, I've worked with a lot of pro bodybuilders. And some people I joke, you know, it's the whole thing, if you actually talk about 
people that are honest, strength coaches that are honest. It was like, how, what makes the best strength coach in the NFL or, you know, a professional football or professional, whatever. And it's like the strength coach that keeps their athletes uninjured. That's it, right? Those are the best ones because at the end of the day, all these guys are already the genetic elite to a certain degree. So if you just don't injure them, that's half of your job. It's not really that I'm, I'm going to make this guy bigger or stronger, whatever it is. It's, it's very similar bodybuilding, honestly, right? I mean, most of these guys, like their capacity to put on muscle from a genetic standpoint, from you know a drug standpoint, which is really once you're on the inside, you still realize it's even more of a genetic advantage than anything else. But it's the capacity to put on muscle normally isn't the challenge. So a lot of pros I've worked with, it's not like there's any real challenge. Like, how do I get this guy to put on weight? They already know what to do. It's already relatively easy for them doing. You know, sometimes there's things added as they're getting to that point of diminishing returns that people still will. But more of it is about how do I maybe better direct load they're using, you know, the whole lagging body part thing. And then truly, like, how do I keep them uninjured or work backwards from places where they've already injured themselves? Um, but Terrence is honestly a bit of a, a hard gainer. So his training more than anything, uh, we're definitely, I'd say, more meticulous than the average person with what he has to do to progress, um, what he has to do to maintain. Um, and then honestly, he's most of the time kind of, you would say the same as everybody else, but even more so with him, his training is always limited by recovery. And so with things with his training, I'm always, always look kind of guided by what's the least that I can do to actually produce stimulus that he can recover from where there's, again, there's literally some guys where it's like, in some ways, almost more fun than me. We don't even have to be a structure. I'm like, I'm just going to beat the shit out of this guy and they're going to grow. And that's fun. Whereas Terrence, it's like, if you looked at our training, a lot of it is really, really monotonous and boring because it's a lot of the same things over and over. And we've really had discussions with, you know, even when he travels, half the reason he's a guy where it honestly makes a difference of him trying to use the same equipment very often. And if I know he's in a period of time where he's traveling, I'll try and program so that he can have the exercises that we're doing. That might be the reason why would we do a barbell press as opposed to this machine. Well, if I know he's going to be traveling for six weeks, I know he's going to have a barbell, but he's not maybe necessarily going to have this machine. So it's even to him, I think, like specific movements and, you know, seeing that we can actually show measured progress is like really, really important uh, to the point where, again, changing movements constantly. He's not the guy that, oh, I just go train hard and he's going to go, go train hard and he's going to grow where some guys, you know, can do that. Um, and then the other part, honestly, is kind of the art part which I love is because um, I've just been into bodybuilding for so long, honestly, like even before anything, I just loved bodybuilding first. I, I tell everybody a bunch of times like Arnold's Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding was my first exposure to training. Um, and I just loved it. I loved the classic bodybuilding when I actually really started to get into like modern bodybuilding when I first started working out and buying flex magazines or whatever. It was like the late nineties, which just happened to be an awesome, very, a very awesome era of bodybuilding. Um, so anyway, I say that like I've I've been lucky enough and I, if I consider myself to have a pretty good area of expertise is I, I feel like I have a very good eye for bodybuilding, the aesthetics of bodybuilding, um, having one just seen it a lot as a fan for like a decade plus. And then basically in my early 20s, starting to get around pro bodybuilders and, you know, literally be there when they're training, when they're peaking, when they're getting ready for a show, when they're on stage, when they're backstage by their peers. Because again, I remember the very first time actually seeing like a bodybuilding show you know, whether it was in person or on TV or whatever, and kind of the same as any other person or the first time seeing pictures of like the top six of the Olympia, I'm like, they all have big muscles. Like, you know, yeah. you, know you have no idea what you're looking at. And it's the same as anything else. I remember the very first time I ever watched any MMA, I had no idea what the hell is going on. You don't, if you know, not, not that I'm well-versed in that, but after you watch it for a couple of years, you at least have some idea what's going on. Like the first time you see mm -hmm. a guy, it's got another guy's back and they're just sitting there moving half an inch at a time to a normal person. You're like, what the hell is going on here? I'm so confused. 
then you understand obviously how meticulous that is as far as what they're trying to do, gain position, whatever. Same as bodybuilding. It's like at first everyone's like, they're all big and muscular. How the hell does anybody pick this stuff? Um, and so anyway, the fun part, which would definitely be different for Terrence than I can comfortably say probably any human on the planet is he does arguably have the most balanced physique in all of bodybuilding. Um, so it really is, you know, kind of splitting hairs at this point in time um, of what I think is actually needed for him to improve. And for the most part, you know, the things that him just being a bigger version of himself now, like he's at the point now where his biggest opportunity now is to, you know, be basically five, six pounds above the weight cap and actually just have to cut some water to make weight, you know, cause this was the first time where he was literally just a couple pounds over the weight cap had to go, you know, run up and down some stairs for, you know, half an hour, come back and make it. Whereas now the next time if things go well, we need to have him have real tissue. That's pretty significant above that actually have to pull some water, which is other coach will handle and uh, to make weight. So it's mostly just a bigger version of himself. Yeah. But we still have little things that we're fine tuning where you understand in bodybuilding, like a default for like amateurs, I always say, if you're kind of ever looking at yourself and you're like, what do I bring up? If you actually feel like you're pretty balanced, you know, the first two body parts I always say are back and legs um, because back and legs, one, they're the things that win bodybuilding shows pretty much without exception. Every single Mr. Olympia in history has had an amazing back and amazing legs where I can actually pick through, you know, every single Mr. Olympian say, not only did this body part maybe lag a little bit, it was actually bad on this person or bad on this person or bad on this, not the case with legs and back, you know, those relatively speaking, if they match each other can never be too big. And, and luckily for Terrence, those are kind of strong points for both of them. So it's one, I'm never afraid of those getting bigger because they won't ever throw things out of balance. Um, and then from there, it's like little stuff that's honestly comes down to my opinion and the judge's opinion of what looks better. And again, because his back is so big, because his delts are so big, we're always trying to bring up his arms. Um, you know, his, because his quads are so big, like it's like there's certain body parts for him and his spot, like how, the way he is now at this point in time, his arms could never be too big. His hamstrings could never be too big. Um, even though they're both what I would consider very good body parts relative to him, we can still always kind of try and maybe bring those up relative to other things. So um, yeah, Terrence is awesome, man. He's a lot of fun to train aside from, obviously I like to hang out with him because we wouldn't train. I'm sure he wouldn't train with me if he didn't want to hang out with me either, despite what, whatever services I could perceivably provide. But, um, we both get on well, cause we're both pretty like even temperament. I mean, that's the joke is like when we're training half the time, we're just talking about bullshit. I mean, talking about yeah. culture and random things. And yesterday we, I had a buddy of mine come and train with us and we talked about Marvel movies and, you know, the oncoming, uh, you know, AI apocalypse that's going to occur and oh, things yeah. like that. So, you know, just normal stuff. And then, but it's like the funny thing is when we get into like, at this point in time, I don't need, it's funny. We have somebody come and train with us at some point. Neither of us need a whole lot of input in, in general, the less input, the better, you know? So if I'm giving him something during a set for most things, it's like one small thing to focus on, it's, you know, get this from here to here, think about this to this, just to make sure he's getting that every part of it looks the way that I want it to look. And then occasionally there's exceptions where it's like, you know, you're doing a set of hack squats or something or leg press, something that, you know, the form is there, not as complicated as some other stuff. Then I might yell something stupid at him every once in a while. But for the most part, just like, you know, we're fine talking, being normal, being even. And then when it's a set time, we turn it on and just kind of go back to it. Yeah. And then, um, and then I honestly, I do enjoy the challenge. Like everything about him is fun because he is a challenge to train, to keep putting on muscle. Um, and then also he's a challenge where it's like, if you get a guy that's perceivably perfectly balanced already, like, how do we improve upon that? And so it's fun for me from a practitioner standpoint, and it's fun for me from a, a bodybuilding fan standpoint as well, too. I mean, things do kind of get 
normalized sometimes what you do every single day, but every once in a while, I'll joke. Cause again, if somebody gets to come and train with us or whatever, like halftime, I like got, even when Terrence is getting ready for the Arnold or the Olympia or whatever, then afterwards, you know, every single time after we train, he poses, he poses all through his off season. And especially as we're getting closer, obviously I want to have eyes on him. See, how he's looking, communicate with his coach that's overseas. So obviously I can let him know firsthand, you know, what things look like, but it honestly is like another Tuesday for me. And then like, we'll have somebody come and they're just like, Oh my yeah. gosh, Terrence yeah. posing. I'm like, I do remind myself still, but it's not completely lost on me. Yeah. But even though it's normal, arguably I get to watch, you know, who could go down as the best poser of all time, just yeah. casually posing in my gym, you know, after we train someday. So um, that's why I joke. I mean, obviously I love what I do for a living. And uh, for that reason, because it's so much stuff comes together because few people, I think, few people have taken the profession as serious as I would say that I take it. Uh, this is from a, you know, a people, you know, totally missed 10 years of my trainer development as a trainer, as a training manager, as an educator prior to using social media. But then also they missed a whole bunch of me just being a huge bodybuilding nerd and fan. Um, and so the fact that I get to have those things combined um, all the time is awesome. But obviously, especially with somebody like Terrence, it's, yeah. it's freaking great. It's awesome. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Really cool. And I think uh, part of what draws me to both yourself and Terence is your personalities in that you seem very grounded. Again, you don't take yourselves too seriously. And it's really nice to see. And I, actually, I, I'm not aware of another Olympian apart from Terence who has like, he is adrift with like science, evidence-based practice. Like he keeps eyes on it. I know he's listened to the podcast oh, yeah. sometimes. Like that sets him apart from other competitors. Like clearly, and like you mentioned, he's a hard gainer. And yeah. I, he clearly takes this very seriously in that he's had to go to that point where he's like looking into, I don't know, the Revive Stronger podcast, which is yeah. like most Olympians aren't even worried about that sort of thing. They're not going to yeah. be tuning in. So I think that like gives credence to that idea of like people might hear it be like hard gainer. Yeah, right. Like look at him. Yeah. But I think that kind of a lot of the listeners themselves are probably hard gainers themselves. They're having to listen to this to try harder to gain that muscle. Yeah. They're not going to the gym and just growing, like you said, just training hard. Yeah. And Terrence did what a lot of guys do where one, he just has uh, kudos to him. He just has a growth mindset in all areas of his life, which is why he, he does that. But people, again, because a lot of people see Terrence now and they didn't see some of the ups and downs of his career, but even like pre, you know, really competing a whole lot. He had some off seasons when he was young and he was in his, you know, his newbie gains phase. And he'll tell you like he had a you know a period where he went and he did the whole off season thing you're supposed to do and ate a bajillion calories and trained as hard as he could. And then when he dieted back down from one show to the next, he literally put on zero pounds, like nothing. He's like, I just wasted an entire year of my life. And uh, and not even like if you look, I mean, honestly, didn't really make any big mistakes except maybe putting on perceivably more body fat than he needed. So it's kind of masking some things. 
but with his training, he's always trained hard. And when I looked at how he was training prior to us training, he was training hard and especially relative to his peers, but training hard relative to your peers doesn't always translate to you putting on muscle the same way as your peers. And um, so again, he's, people don't always think, I always think it's a, at some point in time, I'm actually going to put something together because I, I can't help but think content brain sometimes, <laughs> but put together a detailed video on what is actually is meant by genetics uh, because people say that a lot. And, and especially for the newbie person, they say, oh yeah, genetics, but there's like, they don't realize how compartmentalized those things can be as well too, where part of genetics is capacity to put on muscle. And people don't even think at the elite level that there's not everyone's a 10 out of 10 there. And I say, if Terrence has 10 out of 10 genetics for something, it's, it's structure, it's his bones. So again, I yeah. have nothing to do with that. And that's where people are like, how can you not say he has good genetics? I'm like, I'm not saying he doesn't have good genetics. I'm saying he doesn't have good genetics for capacity to put on muscle. His literally his bone structure is I would say pretty much a 10 out of 10, which is why someone can look at him weighing 180, 180 pounds stage weight. And people are like, I weigh 180 pounds stage weight. Why the hell do I look <laughs> like that? Yeah, height's a part of it. But the other part of it is you're, not, you're built different. Your bones, your hip width, your clavicle width, like people don't realize how much of a difference that makes. And even when we look at things like muscle bellies, you know, I'd say from a muscle belly and shape of his muscles, for the most part, he's probably an eight or nine out of 10, you know, so he's got a lot of great things genetically going for him from a bodybuilding standpoint, of course, I'm not saying he's not blessed. And in some ways, the genetic elite, but those things are, you know, really separate capacities, uh, or separate um, components of what, you know, go into making up genetics, you know, in the bodybuilding world. I, I think that's really well stated, because uh, it's something I always thought, like I had bad genetics, and then I kind of looked at it and I was like, well, I thought I had really bad genetics and I have bad structure. Like that's what mm -hmm. I have. So when I didn't have much yeah. muscle, I thought I had just fundamentally bad genetics. But as I've yeah. I've grown quite a lot of muscle, they're at least average for muscle yeah. growth. But like mm -hmm. you said, they're they're kind of different things. So you can have people like Terrence probably looked very competitive early on, but then it's like, mm -hmm. well, can he keep going and can he keep building upon that? And like you said, this yeah. people don't think about that with muscle growth potential they don't think about all the other things and they mm -hmm. just think it's all kind of one thing so i think that would be a really interesting video yeah i think it's good too where it's this weird balance too of like awareness but not making that depressing because <laughs> i joke like having gone through just being again like a normal person and going along even like obviously you're just well familiar you train the gym you know i train me training through high school me training through college training alongside other people and just coming to the realization of like trying to understand the differences. I remember literally seeing guys when I was in college where I'm like, holy crap, that guy looks amazing. That's how I want to yeah. look and literally become a buddy. So I'm like, how much do you weigh? And that was literally it in my brain. And he's like, oh, I weigh this much. I was like, okay, cool. Once I weigh that much, I'll yeah. look like that. And then when I'm getting there, you're like looking, you're like, something's wrong, man. I did something wrong. And you don't realize the things like, again, like people don't understand like what difference hip width makes you know, what difference clavicle width makes and then, then muscle bellies and things like that. And it's like, okay, it's like, well, one, and again, some of it's, I think some of it's a good thing because it's the same reason we can't all be Hussein Bolt. We can't all be Olympic sprinters regardless yeah. of how hard you work, but you can do something and still enjoy and have a passion and be good at something involving the sport as well. So I do, I joke, I think it's a good thing because again, if you don't realize where you're, you know, maybe naturally blessed with some things, even outside of the physical in the industry and keep chasing the wrong thing, you can end up depressed, you know, and, and not really in a great spot. Whereas if you just kind of having this awareness of, okay, things are different, people are different, but not letting that have like a negative impact on you, maybe just guiding and making some better decisions, I think is a good thing. Cause it kind of took me for like, so literally the joke, I think if you would ask me up until I was 22 or 23, I was like, I'm going to be Jay Cutler. I'm going to be a pro <laughs> bodybuilder. And then it's like, when you start to like get around people. And like I said, that's, I remember reading 
the funny thing, the interesting moments I've had is like when I was, you know, again, in the gym with Jason Ha and realizing we're the same age. And I was like, oh, what the heck? I remember um, me and Flex Lewis are the same age. And I remember the funny thing, how things come crazy full circle. I remember reading articles of him. I still need to find it. I'm sure he has a copy of it. I think it was one of his first features. And I want to say it was Flex Magazine. It was an article written by Peter McGough. And it was when he was still an amateur. And I think it was when he was like 18 or 19 or something or 19 or 20. And, and basically is this, the article was written by Peter McGough about how much potential this young amateur had to be whatever, which obviously he was right about. And I remember reading the article and it was really one of the first times, again, because he was 19 or 20. So I was 19 or 20 reading it, like looking at pictures of him and being like, what, what the hell, man? Like, <laughs> and uh, so it started to have some of these little realizations, which again, is a, comes with a dose of it's kind of depressing. But then also a dose of reality, which again is never a bad thing. You yeah. Know? You know, oftentimes the best like athletes aren't the best coaches or For managers, sure, yeah. whatever. Like you are a very good coach, so a lot of your like poor side of genetics and having to try harder than other people is credit to you for where you are in the industry. You probably wouldn't be the name you are if you were just blessed mm. and things came easy to you. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us thank thank for that reason. So that's yeah, really right? good. Yeah. Uh, and something I, I don't, yeah, there's probably time to talk about this a bit, but I thought sure. we might just touch on uh, initially actually like talking about biomechanics, what initially got you into it. I know, I think you studied under Tom Purvis and did RTS yeah. mm -hmm. and then just talking about, it, it seems like at least in the last, to me, the last two to three years, this, it, it looked like on social media, it's just like an explosion of that. I don't know yeah. if that was like lockdown and like everything that happened and people are training from home and I don't know, they have more time on their hands, but I'd be interested to hear about, yeah, your kind of um, background there and then the way you've seen it evolve on social media and maybe some of your, your takes on that. Cause I think I have sometimes been rubbed the wrong way with some of the stuff I see on social media. And then I have yeah. seen some of your takes on it and I'm like, this is really refreshing because it's like not done done in a way that was yeah i guess turned me the wrong way it felt more nuanced and more kind of well balanced yeah. so uh, yeah i'd love yeah. to hear a bit yeah i mean i think it kind of stems from some of the things you said where you're like naturally not good at something or things aren't going your way and hopefully i'll tie this you know one personally but also professionally and that's the joke you know to go from a bodybuilding standpoint it's like why is like reading about training arms from phil heath probably like the worst idea ever is because he never had a, an issue, right? I mean, so again, what it didn't matter what he did. And again, obviously, even someone like Phil wouldn't have an issue with you know me saying this or someone saying this. Like, if someone's that good, it's like, well, what did you do? I picked up a weight, and then what? Oh, I picked it up, and then like the next day, my biceps were bigger, and then I picked it up again, and then they were bigger. And so it's like, if someone doesn't actually have, you know, the same as anything in life, if you don't ever come into an obstacle, you're not going to create any solving to get around that obstacle, and especially if you're just one person, right? So if your goal is to be Mr. Olympia. And at least from an arm standpoint, you had no obstacles the entire way from your first time picking up a barbell to whatever, you know, what are you going to have to offer to somebody else? And again, that's not a knock on them because obviously there's still a lot of things that had to be done to make that occur, but for that specific thing. So I think my first, you know, interest in biomechanics came literally when I was in high school, um, training with other people, where it was like, I just, I knew the things I knew only exercises then. Right. You know, so I did the same thing. It's like, I want big muscles. I have to bench press. I have to curl you know, maybe I'll squat just so I don't look embarrassing, but whatever. And so you had this notion of these things that you had to do. And I had this very vague idea of like, you know, bench press for chest and curls for biceps. And, you know, somehow if I move my arm this way, something's going to happen with my back. But again, honestly, like the joke is like, I don't, I'm not that I don't think we didn't have as good information. Then it was a lot of 
you know, monkey see, monkey do, and then some really basic understanding of how things work. But I really didn't have any idea of how things worked right when I started. And then I just remember like all I wanted, you know, things, I don't know, who knows why you obsess over certain things. But I, when I first started training, all I wanted to do was have a chest. And I was like, I, I remember why obviously girls like pecs and girls like right. chest. So I was like, I want to impress girls, you know? So part of it is I've, I did always have this guiding. I want to look like a bodybuilder, but then also being in high school and having testosterone and wanting to get dates. I was like, I also want to make sure that it, I always had abs. I was that skinny guy, right. That had abs by default. And I was like, now I need some pecs. And I literally remember bench pressing and like being like, something's something's not right. And I'm like, even as my bench press was going up and I was getting stronger, like nothing's happening here. And obviously I'm like looking. And then I literally remember looking at other guys trying to figure some stuff out. And I don't even remember where I was reading, but then starting to have some basic idea of, okay, like that's when I started to think like origin insertion, at least a little bit like, okay, how does this muscle actually span? And then just how do these things pull? If these two points pull together, what happens? And honestly, I, I, I generally think I, if I have a little bit of an advantage with something, I'm predisposed to having like a pretty good, like mechanical brain. I joke, like my, my grandpa was a mechanical engineer. And if I think about classes and coursework that I like, I kind of always process stuff like that pretty well. And so I would think literally in terms of mechanics, which again, the funny thing about that now is this and everything we've been saturated with, with biomechanics, you know, we have people memorizing planes of motion. We have people, you know, memorizing that a study says, this is what this muscle can do with this joint, with these moment arms and this, that, or whatever. And honestly, that is sounds like a whole mess of stuff, but is actually less intelligent than just understanding origin insertion. Like if someone really wants to be good at biomechanics, the most important thing is understanding the anatomy of where muscle you know spans. Like if understanding like bone surfaces and origins and insertions is very important. But from there, like you'll get these things where it's like people, you know, they'll go out of their way to say, you know, this is where someone will argue with me that I'm like, you know, if I do this muscle moving this direction, they'll say, well, that muscle is only capable of, and they'll list like the three main motions you'd Wikipedia. And I'm like, that's if you have something for at the shoulder joint, for example, you are so grossly limiting what a muscle is capable of doing. You know, if you're doing anything that's any specific motions, that's not accurate at all. It's always could be some massive, you know, combination of that. If you get opposite outliers, you could actually have someone that it produces on paper the opposite motion of what Wikipedia would say. Like I'll say like the perfect example is um, adductors. You know, people, what does an adductor do? It adducts. Well, if you really look at the origin insertion, what an adductor does is when it pulls as tight as it can go, it basically brings your femur right below your pelvis. Like that's the fully short and contracted adductor point. So if you bring your adductor anywhere away from that point, it can pull it back. So this is obviously why if you hip flex, that's why it can be a hip extender. But also if you actually hip extended far enough, it could be a hip flexor. If you bring it across your body, it's no longer an adductor. It could technically be an abductor. And if you tell somebody that that's, you know, really thinks everything lives and dies by the big words they read in studies, they want to tell you you're an idiot. But the reality is they just don't understand anatomy. I got sidetracked. But so I, I kind of first started thinking that stuff when I was in high school, like literally, okay, if pecs pull here, I was bench pressing like extremely tucked. And my, of course, my front delts were getting very large and my triceps were growing a bit kind of independent. But I realized like, okay, if I want this more of a cross type thing occurring, I have to get more in this across type plane. And lo and behold, when I started doing that, my pecs actually started to grow some. Um, and so I remember even having discussions with other kids about kind of understanding some mechanics of certain things and then them being completely glossed over and be like, shut up, just do it like Jay Cutler says, <laughs> which I'd be like, okay, you got a point. And um, so honestly, my first interest came from myself where things weren't working. Like I'm in there doing the same stuff other people were doing and not getting the same outcome. So I had to actually think a little bit more about just for my own want, wanting to have muscles, like of how to actually make stuff work. 
and realizing it wasn't just if I do this exercise on paper, I'm going to get this thing. Um, and then honestly, I, I had a lot of good exposure to good people in college. Uh, not a lot of it sunk in because I was honestly, when I was in college, I was really deep into like, from a training standpoint, I had these things compartmentalized. It was like, I love everything about Arnold and bodybuilding and 90s bodybuilding. And I'm learning about exercises and stuff in this very kind of clinical, separate classroomy type thing. Um, and I got around a couple good people that bridged those for me a little bit. But I had so many emotional barriers to wanting to be open to learn because, again, I was just obviously 20 and full of testosterone and thinking that I knew what I was doing. And um, so I, I didn't get as much out of college as I probably could have. The tail end was when I first started. Like I, first two and a half years, I didn't learn anything of value that I could have. And the last one and a half years, getting around some good um, you know, people in the strength and conditioning program and things like that was when I actually had some people connecting some dots and making things a little bit more practical to me. Um, and then when I got training in the real world, um, it, it was just inundated. I always honestly liked learning. Um, I always wanted this, had an idea of this to be better. And some of it obviously is being a trainer or some of it was even competitive with my peers, like mostly in a good way. Um, and so when I first got into training, like I was very, very into the business side, but I was also very into the education side as well too. And um, I honestly, there were things, there was so much stuff. So this was starting when I was actually training the early mid 2000s, you know, 2005, 2006, when I was first starting to train people, there was so much crap out there, you know, even from like smart place, there was so much different information. Like this is really, I think when like functional training was at its peak and how that applies even to normal people and, you know, smart people were trying to basically kind of take a dump on anything remotely like bodybuilding related. And uh, so I got around a whole bunch of, you know, went through a whole bunch of different education from a whole bunch of different people. And I started to have lots of um, obstacles with clients, you know, so I was having things where you're doing stuff. And I, again, kind of getting back to like, almost thinking like, I have to do these exercises and these things on paper or these, whatever. And then with some individuals, it just wasn't working or they weren't making progress or I was causing the opposite effect of like, Oh, if someone comes with this, you know, I was doing this whole thing. I mean, every, everybody then was big on like assessments and these canned assessments and test this range of motion and do these arbitrary, stupid movements. And if someone does that, like this most stupid stuff, where if someone moves this way, this is tight. This is weak. Like this very baby version of how your body works, but oversimplified things because these certifying bodies wanted to perceive that you had all the answers. And so I remember doing like, okay, this person's got this. I'm going to make this strong and I'm going to work on this. And then there were tons of times it just didn't work at all or made things worse. And um, so through the same type of thing, I started to like want to seek out people smarter than me. And um, I kind of honestly ran out of um, places within the business I was working at one of the people that was the uh, president, I believe, of personal training at that time, he was very, very brilliant, but he had a lot of stuff to run, so couldn't hold my hand all the time. He knew Charles Polkwin personally, um, and so he said, go take some of his stuff. So that was the first thing I actually got into from a training standpoint was Polkwin stuff. And then right around the same time, I was introduced to RTS and Tom Purvis. And, um, and so that's Tom Purvis is the stuff that clicked for me 100% more than anybody else. Where it's the same thing that would deter people coming into that certification was the thing that actually appealed to me is because I was coming from, you come from other bodies, you know, some three or four letter um, certifying bodies and they give you all this stuff in a can. It's like, do this assessment, find these things. Then here's these things that you do. And it was like, here's all the answers to do all this stuff. But when you work with people, you realize it doesn't work like that at all. If you're actually concerned with producing results and Tom's methodology, one, you, you have to have a very good understanding of anatomy, like not like crazy, crazy, but you have to have an understanding of, basic anatomy, joint structure, you know, what are some things that are going to be guardrails of your training? And then his whole thing is really just saying like, what does this person bring to you? His, his, the, all of RTS summed up in a sentence, his little term 
or a sentence is like, what does somebody have? What do they own and what do they tolerate? And if you really, really understand what those things mean, they apply to any human being. They apply to someone that's 98 years old and, you know, in a wheelchair and they apply to, to Mr. Olympia. And, um, and obviously it can get more complex trying to answer those things sometimes or what, what problem solving you actually use to answer those questions. But that was really what appealed to me is because, again, I, same type of thing. I had seen all these obstacles and all these problems occurring, and I wasn't finding answers from other places. And, um, you know, it was going through his type of stuff where it actually required some thought process, required addressing the individual, and it was much more of a problem-solving thing than I think what a lot of other certifications and things go through is like just a having all the answers type thing. Um, and even if you talk to any physical therapist that's a good physical therapist, They'll tell you the same thing about physical therapy school. Everything's canned. It's like you, it's, you read about what the what the diagnosis is on this page, and here's the protocol: step one, two, three, four, five. And it's like, you know, there might be this shred of a decent idea there, but it doesn't help anything when working with the individual at all. Um, so, I, I think if there is a a problem with I don't know, like biomechanics and the way that things are now, um, you know, is people like the subject and the subject matter. You know, and they like a lot of those solutions and things that have been created, but they didn't actually go through the process of they haven't actually perceived necessarily obstacles that you you perceive when you actually work with people and the context to where these things actually apply and what they actually mean, because that's what you get. The funny thing, again, the same thing is and it works well for social media. If you definitively say, hey, here, I'm right. And, you, you know, if you're clever, if you're a little bit of an asshole, if you can do it funny, if at the same time, you're saying that you're right, you're also pointing at someone that's wrong. Sadly, that just that works really well. And so I think that's the nature of that stuff gets a lot of traction and does really well on social media. And of course, keep it under 90 seconds and you're golden. And um, but there's if you actually work with people, like I said, you're you're leaving so much out. And that's where honestly, when these people speak very, very definitively, eventually, and you, we've seen this because this is the weird thing that's happened over the past couple of years. I feel like, you know, some people did a lot of that stuff. And then some of the people that are actually in the industry that have actually gone through the whole process and do this for a living will eventually say like, well, no, that's not, that's not right. Or this is why this is devoid of context. Or this is why this isn't all the time or whatever. And eventually when these people are pressed for more information or more answers, they, they don't have them there. And I think a lot of people like the funny thing is like, it's, I, it's a tough thing. I mean, obviously like, when I do squats with somebody, I don't, I don't credit whoever I did squats with. Right. So it's, I don't, there's, there's this weird thing in the industry where everyone, you know, you want credit, people want credits for this, or I made that up or I made this up or whatever. And there's been a million times I feel like I've done something I haven't seen somebody do before. And then somebody else does it. Yeah. All right. Who cares? But we do have this thing where, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy. And it's half the reason I put stuff in my profile. It's like, I've learned from a bunch of people, you know, this is, this is where I got a whole bunch of these tools I will happily credit people all the time for lots of things. And especially like someone like Tom Purvis and RTS, like that has by far had the biggest impact on everything. And the thing that's great too, is like someone like, like Tom, I, you know, I don't like to speak for him too much, but you know, he wants to give people these tools, you know? So again, he would, if someone actually gets it, there would almost be nothing that'd be like, Hey, I stole this right from Tom Purvis. But like, no, Tom is the one who gave me the framework to actually start to use my brain. And yeah. then if you use those brains properly, then you come up to a lot of solutions yourself with various things. So the only thing that it's not great, because overall, more information is not bad. But I think a lot of people are just they're they're taking that, to be honest, from people that are okay. Some of these people that work with people and they use these principles and they create the solution. People just take that and then they post it. And it's oh, this the solution might actually seem intelligent and have a good reason for it. 
and then not really, I don't know what the appropriate way to get credit is or give credit is or whatever, but like they didn't, they, these people learn from social media, which is a weird thing to me. Like it's literally whether they say it or not. I mean, I, again, I know the bodies that are out there. I pay money all the time to go and learn from them or whatever, but some people literally learn all their stuff from social media, which is all the surface end result of this stuff. And then just kind of say like, that's how they're an expert now. So there is some negative stuff that obviously just as that goes along with that, that I don't love. I don't really know for sure what the great answer is for it or if it's all bad or it's all bad. It's the same as anything else. It does create some problems. Again, like I said, short of context, short of application, not giving people the whole picture. Um, but then some of it is as good as well, too. Like that's where there's like people unfortunately don't have discernment, whereas it's been because people do stuff like that. I honestly think it polarizes things more where you get the you go, you get the joke, you get the optimal crew. Which again, yeah, yeah. someone says, "Hey, you're the optimal crew." It's not said in a good way. Whereas then you have people because of that, like I don't want to be associated with that. Then I'm like the hardcore crew, and I'm like, man, like that's I feel like we're going back to where we were ten years ago, where yeah. you're starting to get this spot in the middle where it doesn't have to be hard. Where it's again, like again, if you, especially if you're a practitioner, if you're telling people to do things, you should have a reason why you're doing it, and a deeper understandings, you know, is it, never a bad thing. It's the same reason if I was training Phil Heath. And he's came to me and said, Hey, here's what I do for arms. And it was skull crushers and straight bar curls. I'd be like, how are your elbows? And he said, they're fine. Then good. His arm day will consist of skull crushers and, you know, straight bar curls. And I might make him aware of, Hey, you might not have pain now, but maybe 10 years. We might have that conversation. Fine with the good and carry on with our life. And, um, you know, so it's one of those things where people now will take things out of context where it's like, they don't actually have the, this is all good, or this is all bad. But when you have somebody else that comes, you have another pro bodybuilder and their arms don't grow or whatever, and they say, I'm doing Phil Heath's workout. It's nice to have some things where if you understand the principles and basic understanding of anatomy for certain body parts, alignment, you know, we get into this profile thing, this person might need a more, you know, a, a more targeted um, way to overcome that obstacle. You know, so again, knowledge in and of itself isn't bad because it can help you create solutions. But at the same time, it's not just uh, people painted as this black and white thing. So it's not, I mean, and, and the only good thing I'll say too is we do have a ton of bodybuilders now that I think genuinely realize, okay, you can actually just work your ass off. You can do some of these perceivably hardcore bodybuilding things that have existed for decades. But at the same time, you don't have to be so married to that stuff that's like, oh, my elbow feels like it's going to explode from doing these skull crushes, but I have to do them because everybody does them. It's like, no, hey, look, do this. Here's a cable thing, whatever. And you're like, oh, wow, this cable thing doesn't hurt my elbows. Cool. It's like, well, what if I get really strong at this? Will my triceps get big? Yes, they will. And your elbows won't hurt. Okay, sweet. I'm going to do that. You know, and this is where you get guys that they're still doing all this hardcore perceived stuff. And they're like, why are you doing that cable thing? It's like, because it does the same thing, except without wrecking my elbows. So it'd be nice if we could have that little middle ground exist, yeah. where, you know, where people realize it's, it's not a right or wrong thing. You know, any of this additional knowledge, any of this optimal stuff, it's good to have to be able to create those solutions when they are needed. But those solutions aren't needed by everyone all the time. And and anything outside of those solutions isn't also inherently wrong. You know, so that's the that's the whole deal with that. I think I summed it all up, right? Did I leave anything yeah, out there? <laughs> yeah, you really did. Uh, yeah. It's so interesting. The longer I'm in this kind of industry, the more you see these camps. I for a time, it was like, I don't know, failure versus non-failure or high volume versus low volume. And as always, it's somewhere in the middle. It's like the answer yeah. that you want. So it's like this hardcore groove crew versus like optimal, whatever. So like you said, it, it's definitely in the middle. And actually, it 
kind of brings me back to that analogy I mentioned in terms of like, it's like you were driving different cars and you're yeah. like, oh, I, I don't understand why this one works differently to this one. You went and learned about kind of the inside, the mechanics of the car or whatever. Mm -hmm. And now you can drive different cars. And now it's, it's kind of like someone who's read the textbook of mechanics, but has never driven yeah. a car is now then black and white saying some extreme things like, I don't know, this doesn't work or you should avoid this. This is terrible. And it's like, I can see why they're driven towards that. And this is just social media and why you yeah. probably shouldn't use that as your base platform for learning uh, yeah. because black and white statements get like the clicks and the likes and they get that feedback and then it just yeah. drives them more down that route. And that's why I end up hating about it. But at the same time, yeah. we have to kind of play that game, but not in the same way, which is why I appreciate yeah. your content and what you're doing because oh, you don't you. you don't go down that route of, it almost feels like selling yourself out. It just would never be right to you in the way you're trying to kind of educate people and help. Yeah. yeah and I, thank I, you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. It's a, it's a, I literally had this joke yesterday. I think we're talking with Terrence. It's like you do a post about, I think you, someone else I was talking to, it's like, you know, you do a post where you're going to say, okay, I want to say this, you know, one statement. And it's like, you know, I'm going to, I've got this thing that I can do with a video. And this is the joke. You can never make everyone happy on social media, right? You oh. do a one minute video, you know, when someone complains that it's, you know, too short, you know, you do a five minute video and somebody complains that it's too long. And that's the choice. If I do a 90 second video, I'm choosing to say, Hey, here's this thing. I say as much as I can about it. And even if I cover it 90%, I'm leaving out these, you know, different application outliers or whatever you post that video. And then everyone complains about those things that you left out. And I was like, believe me, I get it more than you do, but you guys don't take more than 90 seconds, except maybe this one person that complained. So then you're like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do a whole video. I'm going to cover this whole thing. And then you do this five minute video where you're covering 99% of the whole topic then. Then one, nobody watches it in the first place because it's five minutes long. So everyone's like, I can't watch that. They sway past it. And then the person that does watch it watches the end and they say, that was too long. That was too wordy. Just get to the point. And you're like, yeah. all right, great. Nobody's happy. Good. So that's just something where it's not worth getting upset about because that's just the nature of social media. But that is the balance that I think a lot of people are trying to play that really want to help is like, all right, I, I get that this is a vessel and we're trying to meet the demands of the users of this vessel that I'm grateful for. But at the same time, I'm also trying to you know, keep some context with what we do as well too. So yeah, it is a challenging thing. It's definitely not easy to do. Yeah. I know uh, Tom's talked about it. I believe I watched some of his videos. He talked about like sound bites and how they're like not useful at all where you just hear bits of information. And it's like, it just isn't useful unless you hear, like learn the whole, like you read a page from a book versus reading the whole book or the whole chapter. Yeah. It gives you context and further understanding. And that sounds like where you're coming from with some of this biomechanics that's being, I guess, spread is like, it isn't, picking bits and pieces and whatever sticks and is getting attention whereas you're trying to kind of bring it back and be like let's kind of bring it back to what we know and kind of the basics of what we understand is some of you mentioned as well as using kind of very complex language whereas i like again your content you kind of simplify it to as complicated as it needs to be you don't just pick very kind of hard to say like words and uh things yeah. because you can that's because you know it well because you can say it in a way that the kind of lay public can understand versus again if you say it very technically it makes you look clever but do you really know it as well as the person that can say it very simply mm -hmm. so yeah uh again we've been speaking for over an hour so i, I should probably yeah, close it here thank yeah. you for taking the time joe it's been great catching up um we're gonna Absolutely. have to make it less than three years next time if yeah. people yeah. want to kind of see more of your stuff i know you've got youtube you've got instagram mm -hmm. where should they head yeah i mean instagram is probably my most consistent content place so place so you know hypertrophy coach is just the handle on instagram um, YouTube, I'm hit or miss, but I've got a ton of stuff on there. So if everyone wants to actually, you can tolerate more than a 90 second video. That's the place to go for that. 
I do TikTok now, unfortunately, which is oh, a disaster. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on there fairly consistently as well, too. It's funny. You get starting to get, I think people are, some people are getting a bit much of it there as well, too, because when I try and post something sometimes that I can, you know, not make super polarized, but have some value and somehow keep it under two minutes, people are like, oh, this is nice to like hear this. I'm like, okay, there's some people here that don't want to have everything completely polarized. So I'm on there, sadly. Um, and then I have an app as well, too, for the people that are the super nerds that want some deeper education, um, you know, program, do programs and stuff on there as well, too. Uh, that's what the, the app is for, which is, you know, available anywhere you can get apps, hypertrophy coach and uh, hypertrophycoach.com, all that good stuff. But yeah, dip the toes and Instagram is my most place where I'm most consistent with comments. So uh, content, if you're not familiar with my stuff, check it out there first to see if you will tolerate it. And then you could always <laughs> go down the rabbit hole with the other platforms, um, you know, if you're interested, but Thank you again, Joe. I'll make sure that's all linked below so you guys can check it all out. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Steve. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't, though. It's reality, and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.